Thank you, Kristen and Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 8. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we would love to have those, and we'll pray for you this week. I want to talk to you this morning from this text on the Spirit's help, and this is part two. We were there last week, and it was so rich. I wanted to come back to it and pray that as a church, we would internalize the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus Christ promised his disciples uh, that upon his departure, the Holy Spirit would come and would dwell within every believer. Last week we sang, uh, thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. We're gonna close with that same song this morning. And here in the middle of Romans 8, in this magnificent chapter, we find uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer and helping us in the midst of our groaning, interceding for us. God the Holy Spirit, God interceding with God. It should bring great comfort to us. And so, we have not been left as orphans. As Jesus promised in the upper room, he said that the Spirit of God would come. And we read in Acts 2 where that was fulfilled at the time of Pentecost. And the Spirit of the living God came to dwell not in temples made with hands, but within every born-again believer, every believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within us. And as believers who look to the Word of God as the authority of our lives, we should be very focused on the ministry of the Holy Spirit moment by moment, day by day. I mean, after all, uh, consider all that He has done. It is the Spirit of God who regenerates us. Jesus described the work of the Spirit in this world like the wind going here and there, and we don't know where he's going or what he's doing, but he's accomplishing the purpose of, purposes of God. And Jesus said, unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only does he regenerate us and give us spiritual life in Jesus Christ, he produces spiritual character within us. We're conformed into the image of, of Jesus. We're baptized into the body of Christ. He sanctifies us as we yield more and more to him. He calls to ministry. I'm, responded, I'm re reminded of the response in Acts 13 where the church at Antioch got together and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work for which I've called them. I don't know how the Holy Spirit said, but it was obvious to that gathering of believers, Paul and Barnabas were to be sent. And think if you're in the church at Antioch, they're the last two you would want to send. Great teachers, send someone else. But no, they sent their best to the mission field in direct, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption. He empowers us. He fills us. It's a command in Ephesians 5, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit which means to be carried along moment by moment. It's something we're commanded to do, and yet it passively, it, it's something that happens to us. He's the source of our fellowship. He is the guarantee. He is the down payment of greater things yet to come. He's the source of our liberty. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He guards us. He's the source of our power. He helps us. He, he's the one who produces fruit that comes out of our life that looks something like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
He's the source of our unity. He illumines our minds to be able to understand spiritual truth because we know that the the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are discerned by the Spirit. He teaches us. He indwells in us. He's the source of spiritual gifts. And on and on we could go of this wonderful ministry of the third person of the Trinity who dwells within every Christian. And so adamant was Paul about that, that in Romans 8, 9, he said that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. So may God be pleased to fill us and to break us and to mold us and to make us this morning and every morning for his glory. So let's return to Romans 8 where we read, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we don't know what to pray. Anybody ever felt that? Don't lose heart. The Spirit of God that dwells within you, believer, knows what to intercede. And that's the joy of this statement. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. And that word is hagios. It means holy ones. It's not referring to a hall of fame. It's referring to every believer in Jesus Christ. We are called the saints of God in that we've been set apart for his glory. So in these verses, it gives us insight into the ministry of the Spirit. When we don't know what to pray for or what to do, we should have a calm assurance that he's interceding for us. And this ought to be the source of our peace. So just a a quick review and we'll get into some new stuff. Prayer and the Holy Spirit. There's a theme in Romans 8 of God's assurance for the believer. And the need we have to call unto him. I cannot think of anything more basic to what it means to be a Christian than prayer. If you're a child of God, you should naturally call out to your father. That when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this way. And he gave them a model prayer, not one to be repeated over and over again, as if that's the only prayer life you could have. But he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When you pray, pray like this. At the heart of being a Christian is learning to talk to Father. And yet... Something so simple is also perplexing. James Boyce wrote, I do not know any subject that has caused more perplexity for more Christians than the subject of prayer. Unless perhaps it's the matter of knowing God's will and both of them are in these verses. Both prayer and knowing God's will are related in this passage. Prayer is simple. As a believer, I'm, I'm to ask God for the needs of my life. I'm to learn to worship him and acknowledge him and walk in his presence, knowing that I will give an account of, of my life to him on that day. But it's also perplexing. What should I pray for? How should I pray? Can I pray with assurance that God really hears me? Does he really hear me? I amen to that. He does hear us. And we have comfort that whatever we receive from him, that we know is what we should have. What happens if I pray amiss? Does prayer get God to change his mind? We know from scripture that he is sovereign from start to finish, and yet we're presented with the 
with the truth in Scripture that prayer changes things. That we're not to just write off in some solid, cold resignation that, well, it doesn't matter whether I pray or not, God's going to bring it to an end anyway. That's not the picture at all. We have not because we ask not. And often when we ask, we ask amiss. James wrote in chapter 4, and so we're called to ask for our daily bread, for the needs of our life, for forgiveness of sins, that we may be in tune with him. I don't understand all the complexities of that, but I know one thing. Jesus said, you should pray and not lose heart. That's what I do know. And what's true of you and is true of me. Nevertheless, I would say as you may be perplexed by prayer. Maybe you had prayers unanswered and you're disoriented about that. You're discouraged about that. What I want to call you to do in light of, of Romans 8, which commands us to seek him in prayer, to be led by, by the Spirit and, and the Spirit of God leading in, in prayer on our behalf is show up in prayer. Brother, sister, show up in prayer. Be like Daniel who showed up, showed up three times a day, opening his window to Jerusalem, a symbol that he was praying to his God. With the psalmist in Psalm 55, pray evening and morning and noon. Pray without ceasing. Follow the examples of our Lord and Savior who rose early in the morning, according to Mark 1.35. Rising early in the morning, and while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He prayed all night, right on the eve of selecting his disciples in Luke 6. It was not a waste of time. It was a means by which to receive from the Father. Paul's teaching on prayer in verses 26 and 27. Namely, we don't know what to pray for all the time. And maybe you can lose heart in that process. The Spirit knows, and He's interceding for us. And there's a connection between these verses and earlier in the chapter, verses 15 through 17, where it talks about crying out to God as Abba, Father, intimate terms in prayer, that we have access to the Father. To be a Christian is to be led by the Spirit and to be a person of prayer. Do you think of God in Christ Jesus as your Abba Father, which is a term of endearment? Have you received the fact that to be in Christ, you've been adopted into his forever family? And he longs for you to talk to him, to share your heart with him, to seek him in prayer. Is there a loss of the sense that God is against you, if you ever had that thought? Many do. He's against me. Is there a loss of a, a petrifying fear? Do, we, do you sense the love of God for you, inviting you to come to him? Maybe you have needs in your life and you've talked to everybody else in the world but to God himself about your problems. I pray this message would be, you know, the, the guys and the gals on the runway at the airport, you know, you would just, come on. Through the work of the of the Son, the work of the Spirit who's praying on your behalf, call out to Him. Secondly, this, the Holy Spirit's an ever-present help in a time of trouble. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And this likewise refers back to what He's just talking about. Namely, that we have hope. We have a surety. 
that we're to be patient as we're looking forward to the final redemption of our bodies. As Christians, we have a resurrection hope that when we breathe our last, our spirit goes to be with the Lord and there is a resurrection day when we will receive a body that is no longer susceptible to all the suffering, all the disease, all the dying of this world to live as God intends for us to live. But not only that, we have the help of the spirit in prayer. So surely goodness and mercy will follow us how long? all the days of our life and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice with me thirdly, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we identified last week that this weakness really is human frailty. It's what is common to us all. We're frail. No, you're not bulletproof. You're frail. Your life is tissue paper thin. So is mine. We don't know what can happen in just a moment to change everything. But you can be a righteous man. You can be a courageous man. You can be a devoted uh, person and still be confused about life, can't you? And we held up Job. And we held up Elijah the prophet. And we held up Mary Magdalene. Job was righteous, Elijah was courageous, and Mary was devoted. But they were perplexed and troubled. And the Holy Spirit, it says here in the text, helps us in our weaknesses. That's an interesting word, helps. Soon ante lambano. I practice all week to say that to you. (laughs) No, I'm not speaking in tongues. Soon ante lambano means, it's a compound word, which means to to help, to take up. Kenneth Wiest in his New Testament um, word study book said, the word speaks of the action of a person coming to another's aid and by taking hold over against that person of the load he is carrying. The person helping does not take the entire load So the Holy Spirit, when it says the Holy Spirit helps us, he's helping us to bear the load, not taking it all. The person helping does not take the entire load, but helps the other person in his endeavor. The the word was used by Martha when she said to the Lord Jesus, tell Mary to help me. Tell her to come and help me bear this burden. Even so, the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer comes to our aid in our spiritual problems and difficulties, not by taking over the responsibility for them and giving the saint an automatic deliverance, but coming alongside and coming under in order to bear the burden. So what about the groanings here in these verses where it says um, that the Spirit intercedes with us or for us with groanings too deep for words. Who's groaning here? Well, Paul tells us that we do not know how to pray as we should, and the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep. And this word groaning means the Spirit groans for us and within us. Is that what it means? Well, it's used in the Old Testament in the Psalms. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is the Septuagint. And in Psalm 6, David cries out, I am weary with my sighing, my groanings. 
In Psalm 31.10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with groanings. Even when we sigh and groan and lament, searching for words to pray, unable to pray as we should, in moments of anguish, the Spirit is ministering to us. Chad Bird describes it this way, as you pray, know that God prays within you and the ear of the Father is always near to the mouth of the Spirit. And the bond between them is the heart of the Son. So commentators have debated over this groaning. God doesn't groan, is the argument. There's been a lack of agreement on this. Is the Spirit groaning? The text appears to indicate that. Yet many commentators believe that because the Spirit being God does not groan. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Godhead does not groan. It's inconceivable for every reason. <laughs> I believe the key to understanding this is, is really to look at how Paul's mentioned groaning. Don't doze. This is, this is rich. How Paul has used groaning through verses 18 to where we are now. He's used it three times. In verses 18 and 19, he speaks of the inanimate creation, also verse 22. All creation, what? Groans. The inanimate creation. Paul personifies it, it's groaning, and we see that with every tsunami and earthquake and tornado and hurricane. We live in a fallen world with a fallen planet, and the damages of sin have affected this world as we know it. So groaning, the inanimate creation groans. We groan. I bet you don't need to be convinced of that, but verse 23 says, not only the creation, but we groan inwardly. And then a third time, he refers to the Holy Spirit, verse 26, speaks of the Holy Spirit groaning. It is the role, his role as a burden bearer. He's taking our groanings and interceding to the Father with words too rich and deep to be uttered. I was really helped by this illustration by James Boyce about the Spirit of God not giving a lecture in moments of agony, in moments of despair, but taking our groanings and lifting them to the Father in prayer on our behalf. And Boyce uses this helpful word picture. Suppose you're helping someone carry a very heavy load. What is more expressive? A groan as you stagger underneath or beneath um, or articulate chatter. When you're lifting something heavy, do you want somebody talking to you 100 miles a minute with multiple thoughts? Or do you want someone going, I'm with you. He goes on to say, suppose your helper is saying, my, this piano is heavy. They certainly do make pianos heavy and awkward too. Probably we should have spent money and gone ahead and hired professional piano movers. I don't think I want to ever do this again. Have you ever moved a piano before? And on and on and on and on it goes. If you're struggling with a heavy load too, that is probably the last thing you want to hear. If someone is chattering that way, you would probably just want to tell this so-called helper to be quiet and lift the piano. A real burden bearer groans with you. I suggest this is the image Paul is using, the spirit coming alongside in our groaning. 
and in intercession leading that to the leading it to the father in prayer notice fourthly the holy spirit guides us in our ignorance we don't know what to pray i think that's a good thing to say to the lord lord i don't know what to pray i'm at a loss so i'm going to pray truth you love it when i pray back the truth to you Would you hear me and guide me? Would you illumine our steps? Would you come to me in my ignorance? Should I go to this college or that college? Should I take this job or that job? Regarding my parents' care, Lord, guide us in the cancer treatments or the medical counsel that we receive. On and on and on it goes. There's so many things that are complex and perplexing but to rest in the Lord, knowing that he will guide us to pray according to the will of God. And notice, fifthly, the Holy Spirit intercedes to give us very important things. I put down four C's. If it's not helpful, forget it. But if it is, treasure it and remember it. So the Holy Spirit intercedes to give us very special things. The first I would mention is clarity. The Spirit of God intercedes. And what does it mean to be an intercessor? An intercessor is a person who pleads one's case. The Spirit of God praying comes alongside us to help us and to shoulder our burden and plead our case before the Father. And so he prays for us. And God is the one who searches the hearts. I think a good example of this is when Jesus said to Peter, can you imagine hearing this from Jesus? It's in Luke 22. Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. I don't know what that means, but that's frightening. Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, Peter. And through the sorrow of the denial, he's restored again and would be the mouthpiece for God on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God gives clarity as an intercessor. When Paul was writing to the Ephesians, he, he said in chapter six, he mentioned the armor of God and he said, that of all the things that they could do for him, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, what I need for you to do is pray at all times for me. Pray that what I say will be made clear. The spirit intercedes for us to give us clarity. You in a fog? You unclear about your future or the details of what's going on in your life or a particular situation? Call out to the Lord and say, Lord, I wanna be focused on you. Give clarity to this situation, help in this situation, and then thank him when he met, meets those needs. We live, in a, we live in a day that doesn't like clarity. We live in a day of fuzziness. Um, one commentator wrote concerning postmodern thinking, which is where we are now, uncertainty is viewed as humility. Dogmatism and a conviction about anything is viewed with suspicion. Diversity is always honorable. Propositional truth claims are never to be taken seriously. 
as Christians, we ought to recognize instantly that that is not humility, that's unbelief. God wants us to have clarity and to stand in truth. Second C is confidence. Confidence. I pray that your faith would find a resting place on the authority of God's word and the lordship of Jesus Christ and you would not be moved. John Bunyan once said, if my life is fruitless, it doesn't matter who praises me. And if my life is fruitful, it doesn't matter who criticizes me. Doctrine guides our life. It's to be a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. To have confidence to stand upon the truth. For you and I not to be mealy-mouthed. To be filled with the Spirit. To speak the truth as God opens doors. And we live in a, a day where... Biblical truth is unpopular. It's always been unpopular. The lifespan of a prophet in the days of Israel was likened to a marine lieutenant in combat. It's never been popular in the world, God's truth, but that's what we're called to live. And there are, there are un, unpopular things that we believe. And we're finding a wholesale collapse of the church on these things. And those who want to contend earnestly for all that God has said to us and to believe them and uphold them and to be a witness in our generation are viewed as the fanatics and the enemies. Let me just mention a few. How popular is it to address sexual sins in our culture? Fornication, adultery, homosexuality. How popular is that? God's not silent about those things. Christianity is true and all other religions are false. How popular is that? But isn't that what Jesus said? That narrow is the, is the gate that, that leads to life? Wide and broad and accommodating is the way that leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right to the culture, but in the end is death. Hell is real. Nothing could be more clear from a survey of Jesus' teaching than hell is real. He taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And he, he doesn't take away the sting of it. He says, much is at stake. It's a place of eternal torment. It's a rightful judgment. And while I don't understand that, and while I have no pleasure in even bringing it up, it should put the fear of God in every one of us. That if it weren't for the grace of God, we would be perishing and we've been given a mandate to take this good news to the world that there is a redeemer, there is a savior. We're either male or female, the Bible says. And this can't be changed. Abortion is murder. Jesus is the only way to heaven. It is the Spirit of God who gives confidence to stand on these things. And though the world has no patience for those who embrace it, we stand for the truth, no matter what may come. Clarity, confidence, courage, which is akin to confidence. Four times, God said to Joshua in Joshua 1, be strong and very be strong and very, be strong and very, be strong and very courageous. What do you think God wanted Joshua to be? 
Maybe Joshua was thick and he needed to be uh, told four times. Thick just like we are. How often we need to come to the word to be reminded that we would have a holy boldness and a courage to live for Jesus Christ in our generation. Confidence, courage, clarity, and I would mention finally comfort. Comfort. John 14 is the comfort chapter of the Bible. And Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. The comfort of the Holy Spirit, who's called the great comforter. Jesus said in that same chapter, I'm not going to leave you orphans. One's coming, the great comforter, the paraclete, the one called alongside to help us. I find uh, in the book of Acts, Luke mentions several transition verses in the book of Acts after a big event. Uh, One after chapter six, where disunity in the church threatened the well-being of the progress of the gospel. In chapter 9, right after the conversion of Saul, Luke provides this summary statement in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. May the Spirit of the living God come and bring comfort Uh, That can come to your soul this morning as we come to a close right now with an appeal to the gospel. Maybe you're saying, I want this Holy Spirit in my life. I want this redemption and forgiveness and salvation you've been speaking about for the last 30 minutes. I I, I need that in my life. How do I get that into my life? It's not by a work of righteousness that you do. It's not through anything you could achieve in your own merit. That really brings us to the purpose of the cross. If you've ever wondered, I don't see what difference the cross makes. Well, what it symbolizes is this, that God sent his only son into this world on a predetermined appointment to die on that cross. That Jesus Christ was born to die. And that his sinless life and his death on the cross is a one-time payment, the only payment there will ever be for you to be forgiven. For you to be reconciled to God. And that it has purpose and intention. It will accomplish all the purposes of God. But in real time right now, For all who repent of their sins and trust in him, it is God's finished work. It is our hope. Because not only did he die, he rose again from the dead. He's a living savior. And the good news comes to you this morning, live stream to you, wherever you may be in this world. That if I turn from my sins and call on the name of the Lord, God will come to me. God will save me. God will redeem me. I will be his, adopted into his forever family, justified in the courtroom of heaven, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. 
and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in such a soul. Every believer, he dwells within us to do all the things that we've mentioned and certainly to intercede for us when we wonder, how can I go on? He's with you. Never once will you ever walk alone. He's with you to the end. Would you bow with me in prayer? We're going to sing, and it is an opportunity to respond in faith. Dear Lord, I pray in these closing moments that we would be completely surrendered to you. I pray, Father, that it would be a time of personal inspection of our hearts, that you would search us and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. I pray for those that are grappling and dealing with what does it mean to be saved, what does it mean to be a Christian, that, Lord, you would be moving in their hearts and that this morning uh, you would bring them to your side, bring them to yourself. Lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.